Let's ask God to illuminate his word for us together. O Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of you is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honey. By them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Teach that word to us now by your Spirit, and show us Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please take up your scriptures with me and turn to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series together through the book of Philippians, and we've come to the beginning of chapter 2. And so I'm going to read together the first four verses, and that will be our text for this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Uh, well, last week we considered uh, the, the last part of chapter 1 and said how that in many ways sets forth Paul's goal in the rest of his letter, uh, to tell us what it is to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Um, and so having set that up and giving us that important introduction, he now builds off what he has said. Uh, that's the reason that chapter 2 begins with the word, so... Uh, It flows from what Paul has already said. It flows from the point he's already made. And he's going to now help us to understand what it means more and more to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Uh, To live a life that's worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the central part of this section, these four verses, is Paul's exhortation to the congregation, complete my joy. Uh, Make my joy complete. Uh, That's what he says, but he says important things before that uh, to introduce that, and he says important things after that to to show them what that means. And so while that command is central, uh, there's a motivation for the command that comes first, then there's Paul's appeal, his exhortation, his command to complete his joy, and then there's the explanation of how to do that that follows. And that's how we want to think about this text Together, First, the divine motivation for what Paul will call selfless love. That really is what this exhortation amounts to. Uh, In in very simple terms, Paul says, if we want to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, we have to live lives of selfless love. Uh, That's what it's going to take for God's people to be one together. Uh, We're going to have to love each other in a selfless way. And so Paul tells us what the divine motivation is. For selfless love is, almost said self-love, that would defeat my whole point. Um, He first says what the divine motivation for selfless love is, 
Then he gives his heartfelt appeal for selfless love. And then finally, he ends by telling us what the proper exercise of selfless love looks like. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. First, the divine motivation for selfless love, uh, the heartfelt appeal, and the proper exercise of selfless love. Uh, Paul begins with important words about what should motivate God's people. Um, and sometimes we're so eager to get to the, to the command, to the nuts and bolts of what he's calling us to do, that we could run right over the importance of how Paul introduces this appeal. Um, the, these motivations that he sets forth for us. Um, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Um, we, we could easily run right over that and say, well now, I want to get to what I'm supposed to do. Um, but he wants us to, to meditate on those important characteristics first. So much so that he uses a kind of rhetorical device to, to highlight those things for us. Do you have any encouragement from Christ this morning? Um, now, as Christians, we would, we would want to say, of course we do. How could you not be encouraged by Christ? And that's, that's what Paul's doing. He's setting forth something that he often does when he argues. You know, we talk about um, in our catechism being structured in guilt, grace, and gratitude, and it's structured that way because that's how the book of Romans is structured. So boys and girls, if you know that the catechism is guilt, grace, and gratitude, maybe you didn't know, you know the outline of the book of Romans too. This is how Paul likes to argue. He likes to show forth where we stood in and of ourselves, where we now stand in the Lord Jesus Christ and how that should motivate how we live in this life. And so Paul is using these very short phrases, but in them is packed a wealth of theological knowledge. We could spend all of our time today, we're not going to, but we could spend all of our time today talking about what encouragement we have from Christ. Um, and, and what Paul is doing in reminding us of the encouragement that the work of Christ brings to us is reminding us that we were once dead in our sin and trespass. We, we were once lost. We were once without hope and without God in the world. And what did God do for his people? He sent to this lost, dead people his beloved son who lived in our place the life we couldn't live, who died the death we couldn't die that paid for sin, who rose triumphant over our death and curse. And it comes to us and says, by faith in me, all that's mine is yours. You can trade your guilt and your condemnation for my righteousness and life. And all you need to do is put your faith and trust in me. We who had nothing in Christ have everything. And so Paul comes and says to the, to the Philippian church, do you have any encouragement in Christ? When we think about it that way, we say, of course, all my encouragement is in Christ. Christ is all I have. Of course I have encouragement in Christ. Paul says, okay, do you have any comfort from love? Um, now, what, what is Paul getting at here? Well, often when Paul talks about the love of God, he's talking particularly about the Father's love for his people. And that really shouldn't surprise us when we look at this text and think about it in that sense. If the encouragement is in Christ, 
And then the comfort is in love, and then there's participation in the Spirit. You have the Son and you have the Spirit. You might be asking, where's the Father? It's a perfect opportunity to be Trinitarian, and Paul missed it. Well, no, he didn't miss it. When he talks about love, he's talking about the love of the Father. That's how Paul likes to talk. In his mind, the Father is associated with love. That's what it is in his mind when he gives that blessing to the church in 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's, we always call that a Trinitarian blessing. We recognize that the love of God he's talking about there is particularly the love of the Father. God the Father who made us and loved us so much that even though we had nothing to offer him, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, sent the thing that was most precious to him into the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, that he might die for our sins and raise us. That's the Father who loved us from before the foundation of the world and chose us in the Lord Jesus Christ, sent his Son to redeem us. That's the Father who sent the Spirit to be with us forever, to tabernacle with us so that we might always be in fellowship with him and his Son. It's a love that never began. It's a love that will never end. It's a love that's true, complete, and eternal. And Paul says to the Philippians, do you take any comfort from the fact that God the Father loves you? Do you take any comfort from the fact that the Father loves you? I hope as a people of God we're comforted by the love of the Father. So is there any participation with the Spirit? Any fellowship with the Spirit? It reminds us of the rich fellowship we have with the Spirit, right? That this great comforter has been sent to tabernacle in God's people, to bring us from death to spiritual life, to sanctify us after the image of our Son, to be with us, image of His Son, to be with us forever. See how Paul's using this rhetorical device? Is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort from the Father's love? Is there any participation in the Holy Spirit? As you think about the Godhead, is there any affection that God has poured out on you? Any sympathy He's had for you? Sympathy here really means overwhelming mercy. You see how he's, he's piling up all of these things in the minds of the Philippians so that they would meditate on what Christ has done and the encouragement that they should draw from it? On the love the Father has showered upon them and the comfort it should give them? The way the Holy Spirit has come to tabernacle with them forever to guide them into all truth, to conform them to the image of Christ. There's fellowship there and the Godhead considered together has showered on us such affection, such overwhelming mercy. All of it completely and totally undeserved. All of it completely and totally undeserved. God doesn't need anything from us. Um, God doesn't come to us and say, you know, I love you and you complete me. God doesn't say that to us. He's complete without us. The, the, inner, the love of the three persons of the Trinity in the, in the Godhead, that's enough for God. He's, he's sufficient in of himself. He doesn't need us. And we certainly don't add something to him. 
right? We're not so great that he just has to be in fellowship with us because we like ourselves so well, surely he would like us. No, how does that love reach out to us? It's a completely selfless love. He loves us despite the fact that we need everything from him and give him nothing. And why does Paul want to call all of that to our minds? Because he's going to call on God's people to love one another as they've been loved by God. He's reminding them that that kind of love that that God has showered upon his people is a selfless love. He loves for our sake, not for his. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Not for himself, for us. Paul will go on in chapter 2, won't he, to talk about how much Jesus divested himself of to love us. But Paul has a very important purpose in all of this. is to say, look at the selfless love that God has showered on you. And recognize that it's your calling as those who've been redeemed by the Lord to reflect that love to one another. And that's so important because in the church we need to be reminded that there are times when we are going to love other people and not get anything back from it. That we don't love other people in the church for a return that we are called to love them even if we don't get anything back. And that we are called to love them even if they don't particularly deserve it. Right? Jesus says, even Pharisees and tax collectors love those who love them, greet those who greet them. But you know, if you really want to be like your Father in heaven, you love those who don't love you back. You love those who are enemies. You love those from whom you'll never get a return. You love them for God's sake. Um, And Paul is, is teaching what he's always taught. If you understand your own guilt, that's great. And you understand God's grace to us in Christ, which is greater still. That will motivate us who've been given much to ingratitude show that love to others. It becomes harder to show that kind of selfless love the more you forget how much you've been shown selfless love by your God. And the more we meditate on how undeserving we were when he showered his love on us, that will help us to love even those who were undeserving. Because as we've said before, there's something of God in them. And especially as Paul's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ, he's saying, the image of Christ is in them. That's reason enough to love them. That's reason enough that a selfless love should pour out of you towards them. And Paul gives us a great picture of that kind of selfless love when he makes his heartfelt appeal to the church. When he says to them, that's to be your motivation. If there's any of that, if there's any understanding of the work of the triune God and showing love to you, then make my joy complete by being of that mind toward one another. The heartfelt appeal that Paul makes shows what kind of selfless love it is. Maybe we need to be reminded that Paul was in prison at the time he's writing this, chained between Roman soldiers. 
24 hours a day. And I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes and someone comes to you and says, what will complete your joy? Um, You might say, I could do without these two guys. That might complete my joy. But Paul, in the midst of his circumstances, imprisoned, facing death, what will complete his joy? Something that's completely outward focused on other people. What will complete his joy? Paul says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Is that not a picture of selfless love? What will give him joy? What will make his joy complete? It's something that won't benefit him. It's something that will be beneficial to them. Because certainly a church is blessed where everyone is of the same mind, where everyone is focused on the gospel, everyone's going in the same direction, we're of one accord. Paul says, you know what will complete my joy? It's something that would have nothing to do with me, it would have everything to do with you. If things were well with you, if you were of one heart and one love and one mind in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's all I would need to be joyful even if it leaves me still sitting between these two soldiers, even if it leaves me in chains. That's a picture of selfless love. Even in his appeal, we see the selfless love of Christ working itself out in the apostle. And he wants to see the church exercise that kind of selfless love towards one another. And so Paul, being a good spiritual physician, doesn't just say what he wants, but he says how that can be accomplished. He doesn't just make the appeal. I want you to have unity of mind. I want you to have unity of love. He talks about how such a thing can be accomplished. Right? It doesn't do people much good if you just kind of express your desire and leave it unformed into how to carry it out. Paul has something very specific in mind in the exercise of gratitude in God's people. What does he want to see God's people do? He wants to see them come together and to put off those things that keep us from coming together. It's the the truth about sin is that sin is a divider. That, That sins, it's always been what sin has done in the world. When God made the world, he made it one. Right? There wasn't such a thing as the people of God and, and the not the people of God. There were only the people of God. And what did the sin come into the world? It, it came into the world and divided. And then you had the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Sin has always been the, the, the source of division in this world. Always been looking to drive things apart. And the devil is almost chaotic in the way he works. He's, he's happy to drive any kind of wedge he can drive. Um, he, he likes driving wedges in nations. He likes driving wedges in churches. He likes driving wedges in families. He loves to drive wedges, and that's what sin does. And the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Christ has come into the world to bring things back together. 
If the devil and sin are great dividers in this world, then Christ comes into the world not to bring division, but to bring people together. He wonderfully describes his mission in John eleven fifty two. He came to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The Lord has come to make unity between divided peoples and divided nations and divided families. Christ is going to bring everything together into one. And if that is his mission, we can't be content with any disunity in the body of Christ. And Paul says if we want to really properly exercise this kind of selfless love, um, then we have to steer clear of the things that will defeat love in the church and put on those things which will promote it. Paul's also very helpful in this. When he tells us what we should do, he always tells us the things that we should not do that will interfere with us doing what we are supposed to do. And so Paul says, if we want to see that proper love, that selfless love in the church that follows Christ, that emulates God, that brings his church together, then what kind of love does that look like? What sorts of things are we to avoid? Well, if we're being called to be selfless, then the thing to avoid is to be self-centered. Right? And so Paul talks about two different ways that we tend to be self-centered and says those are to be put off and two ways we are to be selfless that are to be put on. And he contrasts those things with one another. He gives us two pairs so we can see the difference. Um, He wants us to put off selfish ambition and put on humility. Selfish ambition is to seek influence and a position at someone else's expense. To try to build yourself up by tearing someone else down. And Paul knew that that was going on. Right? He had talked about that in chapter 1. He said there were people who preach Christ out of rivalry. Desiring to promote themselves and desiring to tear Paul down. And Paul has already said and says again, that kind of thing is disastrous to a covenant community. If, if we see our fellow brothers and sisters as speed bumps on our road to success, that's a bad way of looking at others in the church. It puts us first and puts everyone else last. Paul says you can't have that kind of thing in the church. And what is the thing that we put on to oppose that? Well, it's humility. It's humility. Um, Dr. Dennis Johnson has defined this really well. He says, humility is a readiness to forget yourself and to exalt others with respect and concern. Selfish ambition wants to tear you down so I can climb over you and be taught. I love that definition of humility. What does humility do? It forgets itself entirely. And Paul evidenced that when he talked about his rivals. He said, you know, they're preaching Christ trying to hurt me. I don't care if they do that so long as they preach Christ. If Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. That's forgetting yourself. Paul's already showed them that. That's what we need to do, forget ourselves. That's part of what humility is. And rather than tear someone else down so you can climb over them, instead what do you do? You get under them to lift them up. 
You show them respect. You show, them, you show concern for them that they might be promoted. Right? That's a kind of selfless love. To forget yourself and to lift up the other person. Paul says that's what needs to happen in the church if we're to be of one accord and one mind. Those two things have to be opposed to each other. Because selfish ambition will always say, I'm after my interests for my sake at your expense. Whereas humility will always say, I'm after your interests for your sake at my expense. Um, that's what Paul said will build up the church of Christ. And the second thing he said will build us up in selfless love is to contrast conceit to considering others more significant than yourselves. Conceit here is that kind of cheap and empty pride that the Pharisees were always showing. They were always very proud of their righteousness. The only problem is they didn't actually have any. They were very proud of what didn't exist. Right? They would go down the streets showing how much they fast, showing how much they give, showing how much they pray. But there was no righteousness in it. It was all, it was all cheap. It was all fake. It's what a previous generation would have called vainglory. It's a pride even though there's nothing there. It's conceit. Um, it thinks only of itself. That too is going to be poisonous in the church. If we're always pridefully exalting ourselves and there's no basis to it. Um, the Pharisees were poisonous to the religious community. We don't want to be Pharisees. And so what's the opposite of being a Pharisee filled with conceit? It's to be someone who considers others more significant than yourself. Um, later Paul will use this same word in chapter 3 to talk about the surpassing value of Christ. He's saying to consider that others in the church are of a surpassing value. Um, to look at our neighbors and think of them that way. Um, you know, the, the days are early to, to really sort through what happened with these shootings that we saw, but the early indications are, again, these kinds of manifestos of people who look down on other people, who consider certain people or certain groups as of having no value. And they, they even talk about it like it's a game. Like, see, who can get the high score? That's the way you talk when someone, you look at someone and see no value in them. And what a distinction the Lord shows us in his word to say, we of all people should be the people who look at others and see their surpassing value. And we know that that can be hard to do in the church, to look at others and see their surpassing value. It's easy to do with our friends, but we all know somebody, I don't want to name names, mercifully I don't know you, most of you well enough yet to even name names, but we can think of people that are hard to love in the church and the key for us is always to be reminded of their surpassing value. Their surpassing value in the eyes of God. That even if we were to have a problem with someone, God would say to us, you know, I put so much value on them, I sent my son to die for them. 
They are mine. I bought them with a price. And I didn't buy them with gold or silver. I bought them with the precious blood of my son. You don't think I put value on them? Um, Remember that for your brother and sister in Christ. Remember that for yourself. That's the value that God puts on you. And if we could be a covenant community that looked at one another like that, we would be bending over backwards to outdo one another in love. And that's what Paul is saying is the recipe. Um, That's the recipe if we want to be of one mind, if we want to be of one love, if we want to be of one spirit and one accord in the church is to forget ourselves and think of our neighbor. To consider ourselves of lower value than the person sitting next to us. And you can see how if everyone is doing that, how can that not be a body that people want to be a part of? That is building itself up because everybody is bending over backwards to serve their neighbor. Um, and this, is a, this is a calling, we'll say this in conclusion, this is a calling that the church needs to hear whether you're a good church or whether you're a struggling church. Philippi was a pretty healthy church. Paul talks about joy more about this church than any other church he writes to. This is a healthy church, but even, even he knows that even a good church can be destroyed by people who are selfishly ambitious and filled with conceit. And so being a good spiritual physician, he's saying, root that out before that weed comes to full flower. If you find yourself looking down on your neighbor, beware. You're failing in humility. Um, You're putting on that conceit. You're putting on that pride. And God opposes the proud. Remember Hal Jones telling us in seminary, if you're, if you're filled with pride, you're going to have two enemies. One, one is an adversary, one is an enemy. And one of those adversaries will be an adversary you don't need to have. The devil will always be a prowling lion looking to devour you. He'll always be your adversary. If you're proud, you'll also have, the, you'll also have God as your adversary. He opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Putting on humility, putting on this attitude of considering others better than yourself will not just make us a peace-filled church, but will make us a grace-filled church. And so Paul is calling on the church, if we want to live lives worthy of the gospel, where does it begin? It begins by remembering that love that's been showered on us by a God who didn't need us and gave it to us even though we didn't deserve it. Poured out his affection, poured out his overwhelming mercy on us. And he calls us to be a people that try to do the same for one another. And we know that if we want to do that, we're going to need help. And God reminds us there is help to be found in your time of need. Go to his throne of grace. Ask for his grace and mercy. So let's be continuing to pray for one another. 
that God would continue to give us that spirit of humility, that spirit that would see one another better than ourselves, that we might show selfless love to our neighbors and might see God's church built up in peace, in unity, in love, and in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you continue to remind our hearts what you have done for us in Christ, for we are a forgetful people. Would you continue to call to mind the encouragement we should receive from the work of Christ, the comfort we should receive from your love, the great reminder of the fellowship we have with the Holy Spirit, all the affection and overwhelming mercy you've poured out on us. And may we, in remembering that, show you our gratitude in, in loving one another. Lord, we can be proud even though we don't have reason to be proud. We can be filled with conceit over our meager righteousness. And so help to defeat that in us before it takes root. Help us to be those who are humble, who are willing to forget ourselves and to lift one another up. Um, may we not be filled with selfish ambition, seeking to promote ourselves. May we consider others more significant than ourselves. Think of them as having a value and act on that. Lord, would you build us up in grace and in faith that we might be that kind of community for your glory and for the good of your church. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name.